Across America and around the world, famous vintners and favorite destinations. We share the stories behind the wines. Welcome to Vintage, hosted by the voice of wine, Brian Bushlack. And continuing our travels on the wine trails of Oregon, and for many, one of the first stops in the Willamette Valley is at Shehalem. Harry Peterson Nedry planted Ridgecrest Vineyards way back in the early 1980s, and then he opened Shehalem for business, the first release in 1990. A few years later, Shehalem bought the Corral Creek Vineyard surrounding the winery, and Harry grew this operation into one of Oregon's favorites. Longtime business partner Bill Stoller bought him out last year, so Shehalem is now officially part of the Stoller Wine Group. So if you've listened to our show featuring chemistry, you've gotten to know winemaker Katie Santora, who is following in the footsteps of Harry Peterson Nedry, who is obviously an Oregon legend. For me, it's exciting, but also uh, humbling and nerve-wracking all at the same time. I mean, Harry has been a part of the Valley since the 80s, and I was born in the 80s. So to be a part of a label that you know, is still here and really well known in the 2000s. Is that how we even say this this year? But um, is extremely, extremely humbling and exciting for me. I personally just looking at it going forward, I only want to keep the name strong and empowered and around for however long it's going to be around, which I think it'll be years. So as the head winemaker, you know, you now have your say, not that you didn't before, but I mean, are you carrying Harry's vision forward or are you blending that with your own vision? I definitely think it's a bit of both. I feel like Shehalem's vision in general has always been transparency in their winemaking, is really getting the fruit from the land and showing where it came from. So I definitely really love that vision and think that's extremely important in taking care of the land the best that we can. So really, if everything's done correctly in the vineyard, it makes my job really easy because I just like kind of showing the path um, and the way to having these very transparent wines to show. With that said, I think as a new generation winemaker and also not coming from a family that has a winery, I like to be flexible to innovation and other people's ideas or theories and, you know, that stems from people that have been in the valley for years to what osu is learning and teaching us to new technology we can use so a goal of mine is to just try and stay as open to other possibilities and not getting too stuck in one way because i do believe that we can always continue learning and growing and as soon as we think we know everything that's when things start getting rigid and especially in Oregon with these vintages being different every year, it hopefully gives a little more flexibility to be able to work with them a little more. So I would say it's a little bit of both, which I appreciate and love being a part of Shehalem and get to continue that legacy of how great the wines have been forever as long as Harry's been there. But there's been a few amazing winemakers that have worked alongside Harry that are in the Valley and 
just want to continue their legacy as well. So it's important to me to just keep that whole vision strong. What was it that attracted you to the wine industry in the first place? That's a great question. I went to school for it and it was very happenstance that it happened. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and a good friend of my dad's kind of mentioned winemaking school one summer and I scoffed at him a little bit and was like, nobody does that. That doesn't exist and looked into it and it was real. And so it was very science-based, which my mind works better with, but I wasn't really ready to commit to being a doctor or a scientist in a lab. And, you know, when I looked into it, it really balanced that art between science and nature and being able to do both and get extremely nerdy in the lab, but also then being able to walk the land and see how amazing this earth is and what it can provide for us. So I went to school for it with just like a premonition and then kind of have stayed in it ever since. Where'd you go to school? I went to UC Davis. Yep. So went there and then it was a great introduction to the industry, but then was able to travel the world, which kind of, I think, got me hooked of just seeing, even though it sounds really big and you get to go to all these places in the world, the wine industry is so small. And to see the community that the wine industry has is amazing. And there are such great real people in this industry that it's fun to now say I have a great friend that lives in New Zealand and we text every now and then. I don't know how I would have ever been able to have something like that. So you go to UC Davis. Why don't you end up in Napa or Sonoma? I don't know. I actually, when I was at UC Davis and finished school and you go and do your first internship, I was drawn to Oregon from the beginning. I went to my counselor and said, I'd love to do an internship in Oregon. And there really weren't any connections. I think I was just drawn to it. And then through the years, I did my first vintage here in 08 and it just solidified it. I mean, the community in Oregon is so strong and it's all about bringing up the whole industry where after working a couple of vintages in California, not that everyone is like this, but it seems a little bit more dog eat dog. I mean, California is so big, you kind of have to in that environment where they're so well-known. But in Oregon, we're still teaching people that Oregon makes wine and that we exist and we make really great wine. And so being all together and doing that is much more my personality than trying to prove that I make the best wine in the whole world. I'm curious, when you travel the world, New Zealand, you mentioned already, obviously a lot of comparisons between New Zealand and Oregon from a lot of people. Were there any other wine regions around the world that you traveled to that had an impact on you that you carry with you as a winemaker? Yeah, I think all of them. My vintages in California were the extremely Im impactful. And I think the biggest part is you get to go to these places and spend three months in one spot. So not only do you get to be a part of a winery and see the region, but you really get this snapshot of a place. So you get to taste wines that you could never get in the United States, or it would be extremely expensive. I worked in Australia in Margaret River, and I don't, I mean, I think I've seen one or two Margaret River wines. And so I get 
to have this really intense experience of tasting in this region and without even knowing it, I think coming back and having my palate really expand and just knowing different nuances about the world as a whole and how it's connected, but so different at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's interesting perspective because I think, you know, it, it's a big place, but at the same time, it's so connected and there's so, there's so many relationships. And you said, you know, stay in touch with someone in New Zealand who you spent time with and you're comparing notes. And I think that's interesting, you know, that you do that. Absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons why I love Oregon and the wine industry. It is collaborative and I find it really eye-opening when you have a problem with a wine or you're really excited about a lot that you have these people that are just as passionate about it and can kind of relate to you and be excited or have like, oh, I had this experience, try this. And it just really, I think, helps your winemaking toolbox for anything that comes your way. So you bring all of that with you into the Shehalem experience, if you will. And then you really get to work alongside Harry, who is, you know, a legend in Oregon. Do you feel like now, I mean, with the world travel, working alongside Harry, this was like, this role was like meant to be? Yeah, I mean, that was the goal. I didn't know what was going to happen at Shehalem, so I didn't know if that would be at Shehalem or somewhere else down the road. But I feel very privileged to have it be at Shehalem and get to help it on this kind of new journey or a new chapter of what Shehalem is. You know, with Harry no longer being with Shehalem, there are some changes that have come down the path that I think will be challenging, but also, you know, help it have this new chapter and give it kind of a separation, but also a consistency that it's all the same, which I think is only beneficial for that next chapter. So, yeah, I mean, I think once you get into it or study it, that's the goal. But when and how it happens, I think this industry is really difficult and there's a lot of smart, really hardworking people that part of it is dumb luck and I think you know working hard at Shehalem and just being there at the right time kind of is why I am here you're modest too so you're making great wines (laughs) let's talk about these wines too this rosé of Pinot Noir and you know we talked about this off air and I'll be honest I don't rate wines but I I feel like a lot of the rosé of Pinot Noir is a little watered down and this one's it's spectacular. Tell us what goes into this wine and how you get it where you got it. It's got some punch to it. It's got some body to it. It's got great, it's very fruit forward as I feel a rosé should be. Thank you. I personally love the rosé story that's happened at Shehalem. We've been making it for about five years, but it was kind of an evolution to finding out what type of rosé we wanted to do. There's different processes with rosé. You can saigne a tank of Pinot Noir, or you can bring the fruit in and whole cluster press. And so with how Shehalem was established before the acquisition, we had three estate vineyards, so kind of trialed in each of those vineyards how the rosé would work and in what style. And we really pinpointed that from our Crow Creek vineyard in the Shehalem Mountains. That's kind of the style of pinot that we like to put into it it's a lot more fruit forward 
acid driven. And so from finding out that vineyard, our viticulturist at the time, Chad Douglas, really thought a couple blocks could be cropped heavier. And so he suggested doing a double cordon curtain training that we said, yeah, let's try that for our rosé. And it just worked spectacular. So now a lot of the vines that we think can go into that double cordon training or double curtain, we have started training that way to make rosé from the vineyard in particular. So we um, grow it in the vineyard on purpose and then bring it in and press it right away. So we don't destem it. It just goes straight into the press and we press right away. And to get a bit of the color, we'll put it into the press and let it sit overnight just to extract a little bit of color and then press it the next morning. So for people listening to this podcast, what I want to explain is that this is intentionally grown to be a rosé from Pinot Noir. This is not an afterthought, which I think that's probably, I guess, maybe the issue that I have with some of the Oregon rosé is that it's, oh, and we made some rosé, and it was leftover Pinot Noir from something that, maybe, maybe not, but this is specifically, so when you're talking about the vineyard here, the vineyard is trained, the vineyard is grown, the vineyard is pruned specifically to go into this wine. It's not an afterthought. Correct. Yes. And I'm, and that is also hopefully not saying that all rosé is made as an afterthought. I'm I, not. I'm just, you know, <laughs> I know this one specifically, though, is yes. grown for it. Right? Yes. Yeah. And I think what I love about working with estate vineyards is that you get to know the vineyard so well that you get to choose these blocks that you think will be able to handle what you want to do with them. So it's just another level of technique that you get to use once you learn about a place mm-hmm. it's a very nice rosé tell us about your your pinot noir and i know we've got several wines to talk about so i'm jumping around a little bit you've got the chardonnay as well uh but tell us about this pinot noir and before you do i want to talk about the shehalem mountains and that ava because you know where we sit here is very different than just down the road in the dundee hills or just over the over the valley in the Ribbon Ridge area or Yamhill Carlton, what is it about Shehalem Mountain and this area and this AVA that makes it unique? Because I know that's really the backbone of, of these wines. It's such a diverse AVA, and if you talked about it maybe 10 years ago, I think people would know the diversity, but it's now getting even more well known that within this AVA there are many different soil types and different microclimates. I mean, everyone can say that about even an individual vineyard, but as an AVA, you have a lot of room to work with different types of soil. Mm -hmm. So for example, two of our estate vineyards, one Corral Creek, where the rosé came from, we also make a still Pinot Noir and that is with lowest soil. So it's what I have found working with the vineyard. It's a lot more fruit forward. So even our still Pinot Noir is really just bright, elegant. I hate to use the word feminine, but I really do think it's just a really pretty Pinot Noir where our other vineyard Ridgecrest in Ribbon Ridge, which is a sub part of the Shehalem mountains is marine sediment. And these Pinots are really big and have just natural density to them. So to have both of these extremes in a way to work with 
for blending of a Shehala Mountain AVA is for me just really fun. Does it ever amaze you how many soil types there are in this area? Because when I first, I mean, I wasn't a you know geology geek and still not. But I mean, when you you get into wine, you kind of learn about that, and you think, okay, well, there's there's all these you know sandy soils, literally right here on this piece of land and then right next door it's jewelry soil or it's something else or it's you know it's really amazing how many different soil types there are to begin with and how many are literally blended like block to block in these avas absolutely i think with anything that is with wine the more you learn about it the farther down the rabbit hole you go so even when i say that corral creek is the lowest soil um probably somewhere in the vineyard is a different type of soil or 20 feet down where we haven't been able to dig a deep or a pit to get that deep but the vines are that old they probably have roots that are down into the soil that i don't even know exists that it's bringing these characteristics up into the grapes so it's fascinating and also mind-blowing and bewildering all at the same time. It's almost amazing that we can make these bottles of wine from all the different all the different aspects that go into it. So now let's specifically talk about this Pinot Noir. Uh, where's the vineyard and what goes into this bottle? So I brought this today because it... We One of the estate vineyards is also from Stoller, um, Stoller Vineyards, because Bill Stoller has been a partner of Shehalem since 1995. So since then, we've been getting a very small amount of Pinot Noir from um, that vineyard. So I brought that today because I thought it would be fun to show the collaboration throughout the years, but also to show just what the Dundee Hills can also do. So... This wine in particular is from Stoller Family Vineyards um, in the Dundee Hills. And between the three vineyards that we get fruit from, the three estate vineyards, this is kind of the middle Pinot Noir for us. So it's usually very red and blue fruit. It has a nice density and weight to it, but it's not like our biggest Pinot Noir. It's just a really lovely kind of earth-toned Pinot with nice fruit. And when you say big Pinot Noir, for people who are trying to get their head around that, might, might drink other varietals, what do you mean? That's a great question. I was in Arizona with my family recently, and I know that my aunt and uncle love bigger Pinots, and we were looking at a wine list, and there was this one from Christum, and I was like, oh, you guys will love this. And, I, and they were really excited and enjoyed it, but um, I think what that means is just... I think Pinot Noir has a bad rap in maybe the consumer world of being a light red, um, which it is. It's lighter, but it's not, it doesn't have structure or it does have structure. It's not lacking structure, but it's in a different way. Um, So what I mean from like a bigger Pinot, some of the structure is just a bit denser on your palate. It kind of hangs a little heavier. Inky. Yeah, definitely. So that's kind of what I mean as a bigger Pinot Noir, something, yeah. Velvety. Yeah, that lasts a little longer. Okay, okay, that makes sense. And so this one is not a big one. It's more kind of that mid-range, more fruit forward then. Absolutely. I guess it's always hard explaining wine. I don't want to say that it doesn't have that breadth to it, because it does. Um, It's just 
of our three vineyards, the tannin structure on the palate that it gets naturally from the vineyard is kind of in that in-between realm. It's not completely acid-driven, but there is an acid backbone, which gives it nice tension, but its tannins are like soft, but the whole palate, so it like sticks around for a little bit. Tastes like that classic Oregon Pinot Noir, right? That's what it is, right? Yeah, that's what we're striving for. You nailed it. (laughs) Nice wine. And so what's this one then? What's the difference between this one and this one? The one that you just pointed to is our Club Cuvée Pinot Noir. This is a new label that we have when we did our kind of label change this year. And going forward, it's just going to be a special blend of Pinot Noir from the vintage. This one in particular was from a block that um, Harry and Wynn took with them when the acquisition happened. So kind of the last time we were able to work with it and so wanted to make a special kind of club cuvee for all our club members that have been members with us forever as thank you for everything and here's this great wine one last time. Tell me about Chardonnay. We kind of glossed over that one. I should have probably started with Chardonnay, but talk about Chardonnay in Oregon, and I don't want to, you know, shall we say, it's coming to its own, right? And you've been with Shehalem for seven years, so, I mean, you've seen that, right? I mean, seven years ago, maybe a few people were talking about Chardonnay, maybe, but it's really been the last three, four, five years where it's really come into its own, right? And I think that starts within the community in Oregon where... Probably more than three or four years ago, I want to say five or six, I think there were a lot of internal talks about what Chardonnay means to Oregon. And I think as an industry, we're taking it or starting to take it or just as a community more seriously where we used to have seminars that were solely based on Pinot Noir to really break down what what is the difference? Is it terroir? Is it clone? Is it winemaking? Like what are those subtleties that really affect a Pinot Noir and we're now doing that with Chardonnay and so I think because of those internal talks it is not only empowering Chardonnay but it's also really empowering the people that make it to find like oh my neighbor's doing this with this Chardonnay what can I do and yeah it's just kind of finding its way and finally coming coming out a bit more and the wine labels look different than they used to. And Michelle Kaufman joins us now to talk about that. I mean, it's, I guess, part of this transformation of you know, Bill Stoller comes full circle, buys Shehalem from Harry. Harry and Bill, I mean, really, thanks to Harry, that's how Bill got into wine, right? And I think it's appropriate. He, he buys Shehalem, and, and now we, we redo these labels. What's behind that? Yeah, when we uh, when Bill acquired Harry's share of equity in the business, and we started talking about okay, well, how do we how do we bring Shehalem to the next chapter? Part of that was in its label expression, and we did an entire evaluation of the whole history of Shehalem, who we are, where we've been for before Harry purchased Harry and Bill purchased uh, the Corral Creek Vineyard. That winery used to be called Veritas, and it was started back in 1983. So we we really wanted to go back. Uh, deep in the roots of the brand and of the sites that we farm from. One of the key pieces of iconography on our new labels is this beautiful vineyard design that evolves as the tiers go on from our entry-level Shehala Mountains all the way up through our wine club exclusive. And it's 
an artist rendition of the Corral Creek Vineyard, which planted back in the early days before we knew to plant in straight rows. So it has these sort of crazy wavy rows to them. The other thing we really wanted to do is pay homage to our name, Shehalem, and our our AVA, which is the native word for Valley of Flowers. So we created this crest with the camacea flower, and I'll show you this here, Brian, because a lot of people think it looks like a lotus. But if you see the camacea flower, which is planted all throughout the Corral Creek Vineyard, it really does look very similar, paying respect to where we came from and where we're going in the next chapter. That's Michelle Kaufman joining us alongside winemaker Katie Santora at Shehalem. Now, the winery is by appointment only, but their tasting room in downtown Newburgh is open daily from 11 to 5. Thanks for downloading Vintage. More from Oregon and our trip to the Napa Valley coming up on iTunes and all major podcast platforms. Vintage is a presentation of Feedback Media. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.